Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Tonight on The Readout. I think what Joy Reid did, frankly, is, is the issue that happens to black conservatives all the time where somehow we're less black than black Democrats. First of all, you know, Jimmy, I'll tell you and I'll tell Joy Reid, anybody else who wants to hear it, that I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I grew up in the inner city. I grew up in a single parent household. Um, I am a black man. I'm also a Republican. The Republican congressman you just heard, Byron Donalds of Florida, who got a bunch of votes for speaker, joins me in studio tonight. Meanwhile, Kevin McCarthy and his far right overlords are off and running with an extreme agenda and normalizing people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, while punishing lawmakers like Adam Schiff, Ilhan Omar and Eric Swalwell who joins me in just a moment. Plus, my pal and colleague Chris Hayes is going to help me make a big announcement tonight. You do not want to miss it. But we do begin tonight with the extreme Republican agenda taking shape in the U.S. House of Representatives. After a messy theatrical display involving Kevin McCarthy begging his far-right kidnappers for the gavel, the party he purports to lead has adopted a sweeping rules package. The resolution governs how the House will operate for the next two years and includes key concessions McCarthy made to Republican holdouts, including the ability for any single member to call a vote to oust him. Another one passed today was the creation of the, quote, Select Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, a panel to probe Biden administration investigations. That's right. We are now investigating the investigations, including ongoing criminal investigations at the Justice Department involving Donald Trump. But the first order of business was not in inflation or gas prices or the southern border. Nope. Instead, it was defunding the IRS, specifically for 87,000 new employees who the Republicans are calling agents intent on going after families and small businesses. It is a claim the Washington Post has debunked with four Pinocchios. So there you have it. A false viral claim enshrined by Republicans in a proposed law, which sounds about right. And then you have the committees. McCarthy vowing to remove Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee, as well as Congressman Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff from the House Intelligence Committee. It's a threat of retaliation against Democrats for their votes to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from their committee assignments in the previous 117th Congress. But let's just not forget who Gosar is, a white supremacist conference speaker and alleged coup organizer whose own siblings call him a racist, not to mention what he did to get booted off the committee, which was tweeting an anime video that depicted him killing Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. McCarthy may have the precious, but he's given up a lot of power, passing it over to such extremists paving the way for these members to become the standard for the Republican Party. They are no longer fringe. Now, remember, there was a time not too long ago when another far-right movement emerged in opposition of President Obama's economic stimulus bill and Obamacare, opposition of those reforms being code for fear of a black president. That, of course, was the Tea Party. Not so fringe anymore. But instead, the new baseline in the House and Senate Republican caucuses. We're seeing it again today, the House Freedom Caucus, very much aligned with the Tea Party, even more toxic, and becoming a legitimized and influential sect of the Republican Party. Take a look at this. 
Former YouTube troll and QAnon believer Marjorie Taylor Greene hugging the House Speaker after his humiliating barely their victory. The Georgia Congresswoman of Jewish Space Beam Laser Beam fame, who Mitch McConnell called a cancer on the Republican Party, is now a key ally of the House Speaker. This is frightening stuff and weird. And not just because of Marjorie's cringy promotional videos that piss off Dr. Dre. This group and its motivations are a troubling development for the people of the House Republicans try to govern. Operative word, try, (laughs) because their way of governing amounts to magical thinking, promising that they can do things like get rid of the IRS and stop the FBI from investigating Donald Trump, things that are not going to happen. To be clear, Hunter Biden's laptop is not going to drown out the Mar-a-Lago classified documents investigation at Maine Justice. And Joe Biden is not going to be driven out of office in leg irons by impeachment for failing to somehow seal the southern border, water be damned, to prevent the great replacement. But what happens when these things don't happen, when these promises inevitably are not kept, given the declining atmosphere of the political right in this era? Last week was just the prelude to what will be a spectacle of incompetence and chaos in the U.S. House of Representatives. But it does come with a warning about the rage the Republican base is capable of when they don't get their way and the violence. And as we saw on January 6th, potential insurrection. Joining me now is Congressman Eric Swalwell of, of, of California. And I do want to start on that point because every politician, you're a politician, uh, say when you run, you say, I'm going to try to do these things. Then you get into the House of Representatives, and sometimes you actually do these things, like the 300-some-odd bills passed under Speaker Pelosi that then have to go to the Senate, wherein, because you had two Democrats who didn't want to go along, a lot of them, voting rights, police reform, um, the parts of Build Back Better that were for women and young children, those things died. But it wasn't because you didn't do them. It's because they couldn't get passed, right? right. Um, But those are policy things. The things that this fringe is promising that they can do, impeach Biden impeach Mayorkas, remove them, somehow seal the southern border, end the great replacement. These are magical thinking. They're not real. And what happens, you've sat on Intel, not for long, what happens when they don't do them? Yeah, they're spinning up uh, their supporters to believe they can do something that they can't. And then when their supporters realize that they can't, they're probably going to resort to what they did on January 6th, uh, which is violently trying to enact their will. They had spun up their supporters, Josh Harley, you know, putting his fist yes. up in the air to believe that they could overturn the results that day. And the supporters believed they could. That's why they went to the Capitol. They believed Donald Trump was actually going to go to the Capitol with them. Ashley Hinson from Iowa tweeted today. She tweeted, we just defunded 87,000 IRS agents. That's what she tweeted. So she yeah. thinks maybe she's never seen how a bill becomes a law. Yeah. Um, but she tweeted that. And so now when her uh, constituents find out that that actually didn't happen, like, what do they do? It's, it's a dangerous environment uh, that they're creating. Well, I mean, the thing is, you know, I, Lauren Bobert appeared on my friend Stephanie Rule's show, and she said during that interview, the good thing about this delay in getting Speaker McCarthy or getting a, a speaker is that the government's now not spending any money because <laughs> we're not there. It's like, wait a minute, those spending bills were passed in the previous Congress. That's right. Congress doesn't instantly stop spending money when y'all aren't there. But I mean, the thing is, is that when Democrats, when the Democratic base is disappointed, there's a risk that they will stay home. Right. 
when the Republican base is disappointed, just because of the way the base has sort of been trained by the Tea Party and others to say, the reason we're not getting the things we want, the reason government is not defunded and drowning in a bathtub is because, not because it's impossible, but because we don't have strong enough conservatives. So they keep going for stronger and stronger conservatives. Now we're at insurrectionists. That's right. Let me show you, this is, let me just show you the committee chairs on the other side. Here's the Republican set of committee chairs. Um, it, it does reflect what the Republican Party base is like. It's a lot of white men, um, th three women, I do believe. Here's the Democratic House ranking members um, that we know of that are in place right now. Much more diverse. Um, Looks like America. It looks like America. There are, you know, four African-Americans, an Asian-American, a Latina. It's, it's just more diverse, right? It, and here's what the Republican—and and this reflects the base, right? This is what that demographic wants. House Chair Mike Rogers of Homeland Security says he's going to investigate woke social advocacy at the Department of Defense. Representative Jody Arrington of Texas says they're going to restructure entitlement programs and slow spending, meaning cut Social Security, Medicare, food stamps, et cetera. Michael McCall of Foreign Affairs from Texas investigate the withdrawal from Afghanistan. That actually seems legitimate. Why not? Um, Homeland Security, uh, Mark Green is going to call for Mayorkas to, <laughs> Secretary Mayorkas to resign from uh, uh, and, and, and says the committee is going to hold them accountable. They're going to go after James. They're after Fauci. You've got something about the weaponization of the federal government. That's Jim Jordan, who might actually be a subject of investigation by the DOJ. Those pictures, if you put them up, you could just put the law firm of Insurrection LLC. I mean, that, yeah. That's what it, it looks like, are, and that's what they want the to do. Is the plan here, because, you know, it's not the cover-up. Sometimes it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Yeah. Is the goal here to prevent accountability for some of the crimes that may have been committed in the insurrection? Is that the bottom line? That's what the House just voted on uh, today, to create what they call the Weaponization of, of Government Committee. It's the committee to obstruct justice. It, yeah. It's made up of people who or people who want to be on the committee, who had their phones seized by the FBI, who have been called to testify to the grand jury, who've been subpoenaed and refused to honor their subpoena by the January 6th committee. This committee, if it's allowed to form and actually go after ongoing investigations, would be like letting Al Capone investigate Elliot Ness. I mean, I mean right. that's, that's what they want to do. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, what happened on January 6th, 2023, in contrast to 2021, the insurrectionists lost on 2021, because of the valor of the, sure. the police. On 2023, they didn't take over the Capitol, but they took over the Republican the, Party. Yeah. And, and who lost that night are the 18 Republicans who I think probably sincerely, genuinely went to their constituents and said, I'm going to go to Washington to make it better. Well, their political death certificates were signed because they're going to have to now vote to defund the troops. The corrupt bargain Kevin McCarthy struck will allow them to defund the troops, will allow a, a fraud wanted in Brazil and George Santos to go on a committee. It'll allow Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar to go back on the committees. That's the corrupt bargain that was struck. And the losers are those 18 Biden Republicans. Let me ask you this, because you mentioned Santos. I mean, Representative Daniel Goldman, newly elected, a uh, friend of this network, uh, Richie Torres, they delivered an ethics complaint to George Santos. Is there even an ethics committee now? What's the point? I mean, he might actually be being investigated by the feds and by the government of Brazil, but is there a, an ethics committee that can investigate him anymore? That's right. It, it, it has to be bipartisan. I, I was heartened to, to at least see one of Santos's neighbors, a Republican, say uh, that he supports uh, this ethics investigation. So it, it's up to Kevin McCarthy. Does he, you know, allow his ethics committee uh, to investigate this? Uh, yeah. Again, you know, we are uh, lurching now in, uh, you know, to this insurrection, this, you know, ins sympathetic to insurrectionist uh, era. And, and by the way, Joy, as all of this is happening, Kevin McCarthy, 
another speaker from California has not said a word in the last week or used his power to address, you know, the floods that are happening up and down California. 14 people dead, millions displaced, uh, thousands without uh, power. Yeah. No moment of silence on the House floor. No social media posts about what constituents can do yeah. uh, to seek resources. It's all about Kevin. I have to ask you two questions really quick because we're running out of time. Number one, did any Republicans talk to you about why they didn't participate in that homage to the Capitol Police officers who saved their lives on, on January 6th? No, no. But the, the, the talk among Democrats was that uh, for many of them, uh, the vigil they wanted to go to was at the D.C. jail because that's who they have sympathized with wow. when they voted against gold medals for the police officer. That is still still unbelievable to me. My, it, it breaks my brain. Uh, the last question, you are kicked off your committees. Um, number one, is there any power uh, for the minority leader um, to do anything about that? And and what is the plan for those of you who are being yeah. drummed off of your committees? So he's, he's trying to kick Schiff and I off of Intel and, yeah. and Ms. Omar off of uh, foreign affairs. Uh, you know, we're going to oppose it. And, and leaders, Jeffries, think, you know, has stood with us. Yeah. Uh, but here's the contrast. They're going to try and kick me, Schiff, and Omar off our committees and put Santos, Gosar, and Marjorie Taylor Greene onto their committees, uh, where we have, up and down, done nothing wrong. They have right. advocated uh, for violence. And, and I don't think that's what the voters want yeah. uh, when they have promised you know, to come to Washington and, and fix that. And, and I'm not sure that it's the right image that the Republican Party, those who are still out there who want to be sort of norm core Republicans, right. I'm not sure this is the image they want, but it's what they're going to get. Uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell, thank you very much. My pleasure. Maybe you'll have more time to come on my show. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, up next on The Readout, he was recently nominated for Speaker of the House. Republican Congressman Byron Donalds of Florida joins me right here next. Stay with us. Okay. Yeah. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. One of the unexpected features of the four-day 15-ballot fight over the House Speaker's gavel was when Texas Congressman Chip Roy nominated second-term Florida Republican Congressman Byron Donalds for Speaker. Donald's got the votes of all 20 holdouts on three of the 15 ballots, and his nomination sparked a lot of conversation, to say the least. And joining me now is Congressman Byron Donald's. Welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Good. Thanks for coming down, basically across the street, because we're like really close to the Capitol. Right. So I, I want to start by just talking about, in the previous uh, segment with Congressman Swalwell, we were just talking about the changes um, that are happening in the House under this new leadership. Three people, including Congressman Swalwell, Ilhan Omar, and Adam Schiff, have been take, are being taken off their committees. Mm. Those who are being added, um, Congressman Santos is the one who made up his whole resume, um, allegedly, in New York. 
Paul Gosar, whose family has said he's a white supremacist, you know, attended um, sort of meetings of white supremacy and got kicked off his committees because he tweeted out an anime of killing, depicting him killing uh, AOC, uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Marjorie Green. They're getting back on committees. I just wonder what you think of that. Do you think that that is a good look for the Republican Party? No, I think going back on committees is what should happen. Look, what we told Democrat leadership when they went down this this pathway of removing members from committee is basically saying you should not do that because if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. Let's be very clear. Ilan Omar has said things that are reprehensible. To, to, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me finish. She has said terrible things about about the Jewish community, so much so that resolutions had to go to the House floor about them and they were watered down. With respect to Eric Swalwell and to uh, the other gentleman, that's something for Speaker McCarthy to speak to in more detail because he's going to make those decisions. But we were very clear in the 117th Congress. We should not be going down this pathway of saying, oh, that member said this. They got to be kicked off of committees. But that that's is happening. Not, no, 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 no. What we're not what we're doing is so you did it. So, you're so now this is what happens. This is the response. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to the status quo of you pick your committee people. We'll pick ours and we'll go from there. But, well, let me ask you this, because that isn't the, you're not getting back to that status quo. If you're kicking people off committees and you're saying it's literally for vengeance, you're now admitting it's just for revenge. That doesn't sound like getting back to the status quo. It sounds like using committee no, leadership no, no. You for wanna, vengeance. But you that's wanna, what you just if said. If you want to change the rules, then we'll live by your rules. I don't think we should do that. But, but they're if you, doing But it. if you want to change the rules— mm-hmm. That the House of Representatives has lived under since mm-hmm. the beginning of the republic. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to change them because you didn't like what somebody said? I don't think with, that's with, a change with, in the rules. With, that's on, happened before. You know what? I'm just going to—I'm letting you know. People have been removed she from— was elected. But people have been I digress. From I will before. say, though, that people being on and off committees has nothing to do with the work of the 118th Congress. Mm-hmm. We are actually going to get to border security. We're going to get to energy policy. We have to go through debt ceiling. We're going to have to figure out a way to cut our spending, curtail our spending, mm-hmm. because we're living well beyond our means. That is the work of the Republican conference in the next Congress. This other stuff is kind of a sideshow. It's not a sideshow because unfortunately it's kind of the show. Um, So let's talk about some of the things that Republicans have said that they would actually like to do when they're talking about the agenda of the Republican Party. Um, And this is what the chairs of the committees are saying that they're going to do. Representative Mike Rogers of Alabama says they're going to investigate woke social advocacy at the Department of Defense. That has nothing to do with the border or the budget. You've got Jody Arrington of Texas saying they're going to restructure entitlement programs and slow spending, which is what you just talked about. But that means they would like to, in some cases, cut slash social programs, social security, things that a lot of Americans depend on and paid into. Um, Michael McCall of Texas, investigate the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think that seems fair. Um, Calling on Mayorkas to resign. That is what Mark Green of the Homeland Security said is his priority. Um, calling on him, my, on Secretary Mayorkas to resign. You've got Jim Jordan, who's leading judiciary, leading a subcommittee to probe the, quote, weaponization of the federal government. Um, you've also got those who want to investigate President Biden. But this one about weaponization of the federal government, that is about the FBI having a court-sanctioned raid on the former president, Donald Trump's home, because he had lots and lots of classified documents, hundreds of classified documents that he was not entitled to. And when he was asked to return them, he didn't. And also, it seems possible that it might be about going after the Justice Department for investigating the insurrection that Jim Jordan supported. Well, a couple of things. First and foremost, let's speak to the the weaponization committee of the federal government. We see what's happening at Twitter. 
Twitter now is releasing documentation, ream after ream after ream, that elements of our government was actually in contact with Twitter about delisting comments, taking people off of Twitter, off of Twitter overall. If that is not the federal government actually suppressing free speech in the United States, which is the first amendment of, of the United States Constitution, Congress has a responsibility to investigate that. Number two, and I'm going to jump around to a couple of the members that you discussed. Mike Rogers on armed services. One of the reasons that we have to get into some woke policies at the Department of Defense is because recruitment is down at the Department of Defense. If our military is not prepared to deal with battles in the future because recruitment is down, shouldn't we go in and investigate all the things? That Wait, we're hold on a second. Me, no, 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 no hold on. What are woke policies at the Department of Defense? Here's what, here's, here is what I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. If there are issues at the Department of Defense that are decreasing recruitment, because the numbers are crystal clear at this point, and we have many members of our military who have complained about some of the programs that are going on at DOD. We have a responsibility to get to the bottom of that. My friend Jody Arrington, who's going to chair budget, he wants to look into the budget and also look into entitlements. Do you know that Social Security is going to be insolvent in 2035? It is not going to be. That yes, is not true. Will. That, that is, is actually not true. No, it's actually not true. Now, Joy, it's actually not true. It's actually not true. But it's actually not true. Financial community. That's actually not true. Social Security will go insolvent. That's actually not true. Those are the facts. That's not true. Should we not prepare for that? What the Republican Party and what the Tea Party have proposed is privatizing Social Security which would actually subject Social Security to the whims of the market, which I don't think that people, you that's not what they paid into. The, no, if no, you look at the returns not, of the S&P 500 since 2006, the returns of the S&P 500 since 2006, You're that saying, includes so you, 2008. You, okay, oh, so you support privatizing I, I, Social Security. No, I want to explain to you. I am a financial professional. I'm securities license. Actually, I just lost my licenses because I'm not allowed to trade anymore because I'm a member of Congress. Mm-hmm. But let me assure you, if you look at the S&P 500 from 2006 until today, the growth rate in the S&P 500 would have more than taken care of Social Security, way more than the federal government. And has. each time that way you had more. a crash, it would subject people's no, Social Security true. funds I'm, to crash. Hold on a second. So let me just in, hold on a second. We're not going to have a whole long thing ahead, on Social ahead, Security. Ahead, ahead, but let me just be clear. You and you are in favor of privatizing Social Security. No, I'm not in favor but you of just argued it. for it. I okay. said you, you, you just brought it up and it. I brought you the facts but you on argue- S&P 500. So if a bill came forward to privatize Social Security, you'd be for it. No, because what we should be doing. Okay. Oh, then it's a moot point. Should, then it's a moot point. It's not a moot point. Then it's You're a moot trying point. to put words in my mouth. I'm but trying you to explain just to explained that the S and P would be the a S&P better return than Social Security. Given better returns than so the then you're for privatizing. That is a fact. Okay. So don't don't cheapen privatization when the data is crystal clear that the returns would have been better. Okay. You're for it. You've said that you're for it. That means that it would have been a better situation than what we've seen to this point. Let's go into some of the other things. You were nominated for Speaker. Yeah. You've been in Congress one term. Yes. Well, what were your qualifications to be Speaker of the House? Well, look, I think my colleagues, they recognize my leadership and they've seen it in many leaps and bounds. Can you even give specifics? In one term. Secondarily, I've served before at the state level, now here at the federal level. What were your Third, specific qualifications to be Speaker? I, I actually understand budgets. I understand what the long term okay. ramifications what are. The are jo- what is the job of the Speaker? Fourth. Hold on a second. Oh, we have to have a conversation. I'm trying. What is You're the, cutting me off hold on. What is the job of Speaker? Can you explain what the job of Speaker is? Of because course. the job of Speaker doesn't have to do every single member of Congress has served. Okay, what is the job? The job of the Speaker of the House, number one, is to actually make sure that the Congress is operating on time. It largely sets the agenda for the conference, Mm -hmm. I mean, for the entire House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. It actually engages in negotiations with the Senate and the White House on major issues, key issues. The Speaker of the House has security clearances that most members do not have. You're number three, obviously, in the line to the presidency. Mm -hmm. And there's much, much more. The job mm -hmm. is critical. Oh, and by the way, the Speaker of the House is also responsible for security. And fundraising and fundraising. Right. And so you've been there one term Mm -hmm. and you're 
you're saying that you would be prepared after one term to do the job that Speaker Pelosi and others who were in leadership, you ran for leadership and you lost that leadership race to the congresswoman, a congresswoman who ended up being in leadership, right? So you were not elected to leadership, but you believe that though you've never served in leadership ever, and you've only served one term, that you believe you were qualified because you got into it back and forth with a fellow congresswoman who was critical of the nomination because it definitely looked like they were looking for a response to Hakeem Jeffries in you. Uh, no, that was not any. Because you've literally any. been there for one term. So you okay. you do I mean, not, you you've never to, been in leadship. I'm asking you the question. I'm, I'm so answering. That's what, and answer? the reason I'm asking that, I'm okay, just going to ask you this All question, right. is one of the things that, not, I don't know that you said it, but members have said is that they wanted to highlight the diversity of the conference. There are four African-American members in the House caucus, the Republican caucus. There are 56 members in the Democratic caucus. So just, it's more diverse. There are more African-American members just that are House committee ranking members. They're at the the same number that are actually members of the entire Republican House caucus. So do you not believe that the idea was to make a diversity statement by nominating you? Well, actually, first, that was not the idea. Because I was in a room when the decision was made by people who chose to nominate me. That never came. And, well, and you, you have still on. not explained I'm how you how you are qualified. You've never been your, in leadership. Are you going to let me answer your question? Sure, or you tell us. Over me? Okay. Mm-hmm. Number two. Now let's go back. The reality is, is that a lot of members actually do believe in my ability to lead. They do. Am I to be despised for my youth? Because I've served one term when members know that I have the ability to engage other members through the conference. But it's even bigger than that. Listen, we were at an impasse last week in our in our speakership elections. We got that done. Kevin McCarthy is now Speaker of the Mm -hmm. House. At the same time, I was working with members on both sides of our conference to make sure that we can get the job done. And we did. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing that matters. Last question. Last question. We are out of time. I'm just going to go through a few of your voting record items because you've made some statements about me, about what I've said and saying that I have tried to accuse you of being less black than other folks, which I think is an unfair statement, but that's fine. I'm going to go through some of your voting record. You voted to reject the Arizona and Pennsylvania electors on January 6th. Donald Trump himself has implied that that was that the reason that Pennsylvania was illegitimate is because of Philadelphia. That's a statement about African-American voters. Um, You do. Hold on a second. You don't believe that Donald Trump's rhetoric led to the storming of the Capitol, um, even though we've just had a January 6th commission that said it did. Um, You said that in. okay, you questioned the election itself. You voted against impeachment. Um, You voted against creating an an independent commission for the January 6th account um, on voting laws. You voted uh, you one sorry, you defend voting laws that said getting rid of ballot harvesting is a good thing that we did. So you've defended the Florida voting laws um, the and you've actually def- laws in the country, the Florida voting laws, Florida election laws are the mm-hmm. best election laws in the country. And go you, ask Arizona, go ask California, one, go ask New York. Uh, we do it the best. OK. Yeah. All right. And you've defended and actually have co-sponsored two pieces of legislation opposing critical race theory. What is critical race theory in your view? Oh, critical race theory actually is goes comes from critical theory. And essentially what it does at the at the graduate level, it talks about the implications of racial policies in the past in American history, their impact on society today. The impact on law. Hold on. The the, hold on. The issue with critical race theory, if you distill it down into K-12 education, is you do not have the ability to have the detailed conversation of critical race theory at the graduate level. And so here's my question. If it seeps down into K-12 education, is it stuff that students are not prepared to be dealing with? Shouldn't students just be learning about reading, writing, and arithmetic? And history? so you don't that believe that, that students should be, be learning about level? the racial history of the 
the country because critical race Actually, theory is not, not taught. Hold, hold on. on, critical hold race on. theory is not taught in a you're, single no, K through twelve that's school. That's not true. One you're moment, it's subject. a legal theory that's you're, taught in law schools. Okay, we're going to have to come back and continue this conversation. We're actually literally out of time. They're telling me you have to go. Okay. Critical race theory is not taught in our schools, and learning about racial history actually would be good for it's your show. you. I'm going to give you the last word, but we're going to do this again. We can come back. Byron Donalds, thank you very much. We'll be back. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. They immediately call the archives, immediately call the archives, turn them over to the archives. And I was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office. But I don't know what's in the documents. I've, my lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents they were. And we're cooperating fully, cooperating fully with the review and which I hope will be finished soon. Just in the last hour, President Biden made his first comments about the Department of Justice review of a small number of classified documents found in his former private office at a Washington, D.C. think tank that appear to be from his time in the Obama administration. Now, while it's entirely proper for the DOJ to do its review, if you listen to Republicans or conservative media, they want you to believe it's on par with Donald Trump carting off boxes of classified documents to Mar-a-Lago and then refusing for months to give them back. Well, my reaction is how ironic. I know Joe Biden was quick to criticize President Trump for mistakenly taking some documents that were apparently classified. They were eager to raid Donald Trump. Now, they're going to raid all of uh, the president's houses to get it. Where's classified documents. Right. Where is the raid? And let me Where's let the me, FBI raid. We need to have a serious investigation into this. I'll echo again. Uh, impeach Biden. And that's what we need to do. Now, of course, to use the Sesame Street phrase, one of these things is not like the other. Biden's team handed over the documents as soon as they discovered them. They didn't string along the National Archives and the DOJ for over a year and a half and lie about handing everything over. So while the right is engaged in their usual performance art, the DOJ is focused on the very strong case they appear to be building against Trump. And they are reportedly ramping up their efforts. According to The Guardian, the DOJ has been showing a more aggressive posture in seeking judicial intervention as it prepares to question the people who found even more classified documents at one of Trump's properties at the end of last year. So when it comes to actual legal jeopardy, just ignore the theater and take a look at what's happening inside the Justice Department and in the other Trump legal cases. Joining me now is the reporter of that Guardian story, Hugo Lowell, and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, professor at the University of Michigan Law School and an MSNBC legal analyst. Hugo, I'm going to start with you to get your reporting on what what more, what further documents were found. 
Yeah, so this was back in December last year. The Justice Department had wanted Trump's team to go back and see if there were any more outstanding documents remaining because they suspected they were. And lo and behold, they found two more classified documents, which, you know, Trump returned back to the to the government and that was settled. But it kind of speaks to a pattern of obstructive behavior, at least what that's what the Justice Department thinks right. with respect to Trump. And so what has been happening behind closed doors over at the D.C. courthouse is at every turn now the Justice Department is bringing all these cases to the chief judge and saying, look, we need judicial intervention at every turn because we just don't trust Trump's lawyers anymore. You know, we now for a second time, we've had more classified documents emerge. We really need to know the names and identities of these people who did the second search so we can question them. And that can be part of the wider investigation. Uh, and so, Barbara, just explain for those who are you know, tempted to listen to what the right has been trying to do to make this equivalence between the Biden, just the Biden, I think themselves discovered these documents and turned them over to the National Archives and, you know, started, triggered that inquiry um, and what's going on with Trump. Yeah, well, so first, of course, Joy, the facts matter, and the Justice Department is doing the appropriate thing by assigning this case to a U.S. attorney, appointed by Trump, by the way, to investigate the facts and get to the bottom of everything. So that's important. But based on the facts that we know so far, uh, it, to, to compare these two things is to compare an accidental fender bender with deliberately driving your car into a crowd. These are apples and oranges. In the case of Donald Trump, we have seen uh, a, a resistance at every step to turning these documents over. When prosecutors make a decision about charging of the mishandling of classified documents, typically they will charge only when there is the presence of an aggravating factor. Jim Comey explained this when the FBI recommended no charges against Hillary Clinton before the 2016 election. Those aggravating factors are willfulness, obstruction of justice, and disloyalty to the United States. Now, there's no evidence of Donald Trump showing disloyalty to the United States uh, for these documents, but willfulness is present. Obstruction of justice appears to be present. And those things are completely lacking in the case of Joe Biden. Based on what we know, it appears that documents were perhaps negligently, uh, we don't know what level of intent, found in that office. And until we know more, it's irresponsible, I think, to compare the two. And, and Hugo, the, this is as the uh, Trump Team Trump or Donald Trump is facing a lot incoming. Um, we have a special grand jury in Georgia. That Trump inquiry has concluded its investigation. Uh, there's a hearing going to be held on January 24th to determine whether that will be made public and there and what the grand jury is going to recommend. And of course, there's also um, the court weighing immunity for Donald Trump in a defamation case over the rape claim that E. Jean Carroll made. Inside of sort of Trump world. Are each of these things sort of weighing equally on them? Because they all seem to be genuine legal jeopardy. Uh, no, and I think it's it's a fact of the case that there are so many things happening that they can't devote equal amounts of time to everything. But it's also, I think, a reflection of the fact that Trump's lawyers know, like, the really serious cases inherently. You know, the thing they are spending the most amount of time on it's the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Yeah. A person close to the legal team described it as kind of 80% of our time is focused on the documents case. 20% of the time is focused on the January 6th cases. Yeah. And then 10% is just spread everywhere else. Everywhere else. The E. Jean Carroll case obviously is a civil case, um, Barbara, but is that sort of the right way to look at it? That the, the most jeopardy Donald Trump faces is on the Mar-a-Lago documents because of the obstruction and just for possessing the documents at all? Yeah, I think the Mar-a-Lago case is the most 
uh, urgent case, only because I think that's the one that prosecutors could charge pretty quickly, I think. You know, the January 6th case still strikes me as one where they, they need to button down a lot of other things. And it seems that if charges can be filed, they can be filed sooner in the Mar-a-Lago case. And the Espionage Act brings with it uh, lengthy prison terms. Um, but over the horizon, I think the January 6th case still looms larger. Uh, it may be uh, uh, longer in coming, but if it does come, I think that one is is one that threatens not only to expose Donald Trump to criminal prosecution, but even to bar him from holding office again under the 14th Amendment. Uh, that is the one he should be paying attention to. That sounds like Hugo Lowell and Barbara McQuaid. Thank you both very much. We'll be right back. They call it the Sunshine State, famous for being home to Disney World, the Everglades, and low taxes. But more recently, the state of Florida has become known for something else, for being a hotbed of political extremism. We saw Donald Trump hightail it to Florida after being forced to leave the White House, as well as Roger Stone after his jail sentence was commuted. Former leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, is Miami-based. Not to mention Governor Ron DeSantis banning books while passing laws to prevent schools from teaching about the history of racism and the existence of gay people. He even appointed a member to the Broward School Board who said they welcomed support from the Proud Boys. And now Florida is also a temporary safe haven for the authoritarian former president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, who was seen this week giving uh, going to public supermarket, eating at a KFC, even taking selfies with fans. While just days later, his supporters took part in a January 6th style insurrection. One expert argues that what we saw Sunday in Brazil proves that Florida is more than just a home base for extremism in America, but rather for a global fascist movement. Joining me now is that expert, William Horn, co-founder and editor of the Activist History Review and postdoctoral fellow at Villanova University. Professor Horn, thank you for being here. I saw your tweet thread, sent it to my team. It was like, but that guy, uh, because what you were saying is something that actually um, and actually the people, the person who sent it to me is from Florida and was warning for a long time to me that Florida really is becoming this kind of hotbed of fascism. How and why? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's worth noting, you know, Florida has 53, you know, hate groups, uh, different chapters of hate groups like uh, you know, different organizations, according to the F uh, SPLC. Um, you know, so th this is a major problem in Florida, but it is, as you noted, also a problem in Florida politics. And so it's no accident, of course, that uh, Ron DeSantis in the aftermath of the January, uh, the 2020 uprisings, uh, the Black Lives Matter uprisings, um, passed laws targeting protesters, making it legal or semi-legal for um, people to run over protesters with their cars. Um, he's passed voter suppression laws. This is a fairly dangerous, uh, you know, and far right, um, you know, governor, but also one with presidential ambitions. And so when we're looking at Florida, one of the things we need to keep in mind, and I think this comes through quite clearly uh, in the Brazil example as well, um, is that this isn't stuff that's localized to Florida, right? We can't just sort of all roll our eyes and say, ah, oh, Florida, and forget about it, right? Um, it, this is a, a problem that, that impacts uh, all of us in, in various ways. And just just to go th through through some of it, um, of those hate groups, um, white supremacist, right wing extremist groups, it's home to the Ku Klux Klan, the Vinlander Social Club, Stormfront, Will to Rise, Patriot Front, Liberty Council, League of the South and the Proud Boys. The Proud Boys have seven different chapters just in Florida. 
And I want to show this video. This was the first time that I became aware of the Proud Boys. This was them heckling, and we'll just, I'll just talk over it if we want to play it. Them heckling Speaker Pelosi um, and screaming at her and sort of trying to intimidate her. You've seen this kind of thing happen. Well, now the Proud Boys have essentially taken control of the Miami-Dade Republican Party. So the extremists have moved into politics. That's right. And I, I think it's worth noting, too, one of the hate groups uh, that, that you didn't mention is called America First. Um, America First is not only the Trumpist slogan and not only a plank in Rick Scott, the senator from Florida's 11 point program um, for America. Right. The Senate um, uh, platform, but is also, um, in fact, the, the name of the fascist party from the United States in the 1940s. And so this is all like, I think, fairly blatant and out in the open, but it is an issue that is connected to, uh, politicians, uh, as well as to, uh, people that we think of more as vigil- vigilantes or paramilitaries. Why Florida? I mean, the, the the South is very conservative. It's home to very conservative politicians across the South. Why would these groups be particularly attracted to Florida? Is it the low taxes and the weather? I mean, why? <laughs> it is great weather. I mean, I think part of it is the low taxes, right? Um, part of it is also, you know, like these are groups that are running overhead. They don't want to have to deal with taxes, right? Uh, I think part of it, though, is also that there is sort of an existing far right infrastructure there. Uh, in Florida from the the dirty wars of the Cold War era, and particularly uh, from the Reagan administration. And so there's a lot of people um, who are engaged in sort of like transnational far right uh, organizing uh, based in South Florida, uh, sort of as a byproduct of the Cold War. And so there is a sort of like a structural built in thing um, that leads to more of this sort of far right extremism uh, in Florida, as opposed to uh, maybe other places that are also have their own problems. And how should we be thinking about this as Ron DeSantis, who's definitely feeding into very far right uh, social ideas and trying to alter schools and alter the culture and alter education to make it more Christian right, as he prepares to probably run for president, how should we be thinking about that? I mean, I think that's very dangerous. You know, I I think that sort of the key takeaway here is we have a collection of various groups from sort of classic paramilitary groups. Uh, to politicians who are affiliated or even loosely associated with them, to the former president, um, who, of course, tried to uh, overturn the election in the January 6th insurrection, right? We have all of these people in all of this, this is the same place, right? Um, and so, of course, we're going to have problems coming out of there, right? Uh, DeSantis is an expression of that problem. He's not sort of the, the main person. There is no main person, right? Um, you know, it, it's in fact the organizing that we need to be most concerned about. Um, and I think that's also where we'll see the closest connections uh, between the uh, the insurrection in the U.S. Uh, and that in Brazil. Uh, William Horn, thank you very much. I really appreciate you. Hopefully you will come back. Thank you. Uh, and y'all don't go anywhere because I have got a big, exciting announcement to share with you right after this break. Okay, I'm about to bring in my friend and colleague Chris Hayes for a very special announcement. A week from tonight, the day after Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we will be hosting a town hall on race in America at 10 p.m. Eastern. The town hall, called A National Day of Racial Healing, is sponsored by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and will take place in New Orleans at Studio B. And here he is, Chris Hayes. Uh, wait, where is, there he is, there he is, Chris there Hayes. It's going to be you, me, and Tremaine Lee uh, at this amazing warehouse talking about racial healing. What do you, what do you, how do you expect this to go? What are you thinking? 
Well, first of all, I, I always take any uh, opportunity excuse to go to New Orleans, so, so I'm sure. excited about that. Um, but second of all, i got to say, I did not know about some of the racial healing work the Kellogg Foundation had done, and I will be totally, totally honest, I was slightly skeptical when I heard the word. I was like, I tend to have a very like materialist conception of how all this stuff works. It's about who owns property, how the laws function. But the work they've done is super fascinating. Um, they do this really interesting work with groups, and it's a kind of way in to get from what I would say is the psychological to the political. So I think there's a really interesting story to tell about how that works. And I think it's particularly important that we're doing this in, in early 2023, because I think we have seen several waves of consciousness about racism, racial hierarchy in America, white supremacy and its, its you know effects, and then yeah. backlash to that consciousness. And now it feels like we're in a sort of contested space, right? We're, we're neither in the sort of summer of 2020, and we're not quite in that backlash anti-critical race theory moment. <laughs> and I think there's, there's opening now for conversations here that were maybe not there a year or two ago when that backlash was at its most powerful. You know what? What's what's kind of frightening to me is that we are always in this sort of boom bust cycle on race in this country, right? You have Obama, yep. and then you have Trumpism and MAGA, and then you had this moment when you had like lots and lots of white people at Black Lives Matter marches, Huge, yeah. and then all in- of a sudden there was a backlash against that, and the idea that that had to be stomped down, that wokeness was threatening. We're still there in my mind. So racially healing to me seems like a complex thing to get. In yeah, that I mean, I think I think the backlash is still churning. I think in some ways there's parts of it that have lost their steam or they've kind of sort of like chasing like a dog after another car. Uh, like, <laughs> you know, like, the no, I mean, really like the same people who are like, they're like really on drag brunches right now. Um, but I also think yeah. that that the, the boom bust is really the problem. Right. And so getting to some of the deeper structural issues is kind of what yeah. we're after. Well, that's what we're going to be doing. B Mike is the artist that you guys saw behind yeah, us. Uh, and cool. that's what we're going to be doing. But I want to throw it back over to you for your amazing show. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. 